0: You're listening to the Pro Life Ohio podcast presented by Ohio Right to Life. I'm Allie Frazier, the Director of Communications at Ohio Right to Life, and your host. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Pro Life Ohio podcast. I hope everyone's Friday is going great so far. So for this week's episode, Ohio Rights Life's Vice President, Stephanie Kreider, is going to be interviewing Professor Charles Camosi, a professor of bioethics, and they are going to be talking about pro-life ethics during this unprecedented time, um, where the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting so many vulnerable lives. Hope you enjoy. Thanks for joining us today. I have a special guest, and
1: we're going to do um, some fun new things at Ohio to right. Life well, everyone is quarantined at home and looking for opportunities to exercise our brains and stay involved in the world outside. So today, um, we're gonna have a conversation with Charles Famosi, who's a bioethics and um, professor of theology, if that's correct. Um, I'll read a bit of his bio here in just a minute, but um, he is a professor of Christian ethics at Fordham University, a bioethicist, and an author of multiple books, which I'm sure he'll mention as we get into this conversation. So welcome, Charlie.
2: It's my pleasure to be with you.
1: Great. So we asked Charlie to be here today to talk about the challenges we're facing as a nation during this pandemic, particularly with regard to the difficulties it might pose to our healthcare system and the conversations that have already started around rationing of care. So um, I want to explain Ohio Right to Life's interest in this issue. Ohio Right to Life is um, a pro-life organization. We've been around for over 50 years now. we're best known for our advocacy on abortion issues, but we actually also do quite a bit on end of life issues as well. So, the mission of Ohio Right to Life is to promote and defend the dignity of life from conception until natural death. Um, and, you know, our advocacy, even lately, has been centered more on abortion. So, here in Ohio, we've been Fighting a legal battle over the um, health orders to cease any elective surgeries, which in our minds includes abortions, surgical abortions. If there's a need for some sort of life saving procedure, certainly those can still be done at hospitals, but we believe that Planned Parenthood and preterm and all these other clinics who are continuing to operate are doing so in violation of the director's health orders. Um, so, again, you know, that's kind of what we're most known known for, and what the media picks on most often, but today we are switching gears and kind of trying to stay ahead actually of another issue that I think is going to become much more pressing in the coming uh, weeks and certainly months. So that is the issue of the treatment of our most vulnerable populations, the elderly and the disabled. And um, you know, as we face this shortage of certain medical equipment, certainly ventilators, um, protective gear for, medical professionals, there are real concerns about care being rationed as more and more people present themselves at the hospitals and emergency rooms with symptoms of COVID-19. And so we have invited Professor Komosi here to talk a little bit more about that. So I am just going to turn it over to him for a moment.
2: Well, first of all, thanks for your advocacy on the abortion issue related to this. I find it so infuriating, actually, that they want to call themselves as just another kind of healthcare um except when it doesn't work out for them to call themselves a kind right. of healthcare, right so yes. you know if we want a certain kind of uh person doing the abortion like a physician we say well i don't know if physicians have to always be the one to do abortions or if we want call our our clinics healthcare clinics well i don't know if we have to be bound by the the silly things about having wide hallways for gurneys or something like that. This seems to be the latest example of that, right? Where we just say, well, I know every other healthcare institution is making way for COVID-19 patients, but we don't have to do
1: that. Right. Yes. It's
2: just, it's just bizarre. Um, but I'm, I'm grateful that you're out ahead of these sets of issues. Um, it's really important. I think to get out ahead of it where I teach. And just, swimming in drowning us. Um, in ways that we just are not prepared for. And we're kind of following where Italy and Spain are right now and have been in terms of thinking, I don't know how we're going to treat all these people with the kind of resources we have available to us. We're just in this situation where we got to make horrific decisions. But as I wrote in a um, religion news service piece recently, Yes, we have to ration care but no, we don't have to lose our humanity in doing it. We certainly don't need to lose our um, Respect for the most vulnerable lives in doing it. Unfortunately, we've seen in Italy and and in Spain um, situations where they've decided to ration care based straight-up no chaser on age So right you're over 65 or if you're over 60 even in some in some reported cases You're just out of luck um There may be, in fact, some uh, situations where the U.S. tries to follow suit, or at least some places in the U.S. where they've tried to follow suit. Um, I know you and I discussed uh, Washington State as being one of those um, examples where they had a major conference call according to reporting from the New York Times and others of 300 some or almost 300 clinicians. And one of the conclusions, at least in their draft protocol, was that if it, we're going to cut it off at a certain age. Um, yeah. That is a clear violation of the human dignity of our most vulnerable at the end of life. And, and they even did, I think they also did uh, approve a protocol where, where um, physical ability and cognitive ability were also taken into account about whether you would get... Um, those kind of uh, resources. The pushback from me and from others um, has been to say, uh, we can't do that if we care about uh, the very basic dignity of the human person.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even um, reading some of these headlines, I personally just feel kind of conflicted about some of these stories. I know there was a story about an Italian priest even who had more or less sacrificed his own, I mean, he sacrificed his life for another patient in an Italian hospital. And um, I mean, there is something very beautiful in that, right? Laying down one's life for another, but at the same time, um, the way that story was pushed out felt almost like this is the example, right? This is what we should aspire to. And that felt a little bit alarming to me.
2: And it's already in a culture that discriminates deeply against, the old and the sick and the disabled, I'm sure in your work with, um, trying to resist the throwaway culture of euthanasia, um, you experience this all the time. Um, we tend to think of in this country, especially people's value as residing in their abilities, their capacity to produce, whether they are a burden or a benefit to others. Uh, but that that again is just totally contrary to the dignity of a human person that pro life groups um, are so adept at fighting for. Right. Uh, this it's not surprising that we've had some recourse to that kind of throwaway culture with regard to, to our elderly brothers and sisters and our disabled brothers and sisters. It was already here, and this can kind of exacerbate
1: it. Yeah, definitely. So um, I want to switch a little bit to just the things that we might be seeing um, medical professionals kind of forced to do, the decisions they're forced to make right now. So I know you are not a medical professional, of course, but at present, um, we might be in some places in this country too far into this pandemic to flatten the curve, you know, so much that we've, we've heard so much about the importance of that. and there is already overcrowding at certain ICUs and emergency departments and hospitals, particularly in New York, where you are, is really yes. the epicenter of all of this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I'm here, I'm sure you're hearing you know some stories about this and, and the experience of doctors. At this point, um, what guiding principles should medical professionals use if they are in a situation where they're forced to make choices about who can access specific treatment? And maybe more importantly, who should be making these choices?
2: Yeah, it's really bad. Um, Stephanie, it's really bad. I just was texting with a dear friend of mine who works at a hospital in the area and she's in leadership in in the hospital where she's at. And, um, she described a situation yesterday where they had three patients crashing as she called it and one ventilator. (sighs) Um, one of the results was that one of her fellow physicians uh, literally bag vented the person, took a squeezy bag-like device to breathe for the person. Some of the early stages of thinking about this, there were some discussions from some doctors, could we actually recruit uh, people to bag vent patients? In a in pretty obvious situation, we're going to find ourselves where we uh, the need for ventilators is outstripped by um, the need outstrips our resources um i've i was uh zooming into a meeting of um new york city er uh, residents earlier this week and the fear is palpable it's just so is bad but to get to your to your questions um again we don't want to we don't want to Ration care in a way that we, such a way we lose our humanity and we violate the fundamental dignity of the human person. Um, So what are some ways we might decide to ration care? Well, one would be on the basis of, um, well, first of all, I think they should almost all be first clinical indications, like clinically speaking, from the doctor's perspective, from the medical team's perspective, who is most in need of this, right? Who's who's going to crash and die without it? Mm -hmm. And then um, a second one would be who uh, is most likely to benefit from it. So if you have a particular patient with significant comorbidities or underlying illnesses that make it unlikely they are to survive being intubated and put on a ventilator, that could be another basis on which you uh, might ration care. Then two other ones are more controversial, but I think are at least worth talking about. One is giving um, preference to physicians themselves and nurses themselves and first responders who put their lives on the line for all of us um, in really heroic ways. I think that's worth talking about. And then maybe um, most controversial, but I still think worth talking about is uh, for people who enter these clinical trials for various drugs, um, which we're testing right now to try to help uh, fight COVID-19, should we give preference to those individuals if they're they're also willing to try what might be dangerous drugs um, mm-hmm. to help? help the rest of us. Beyond that, I don't really think there ought to be um, uh, rationing on basis, certainly what we just talked about on the basis of age, disability. Some try to f- get a little bit fancy uh, and say, well, we don't, we're not going to discriminate on the basis of age. We're going to discriminate on the number of life years added that a particular interv- intervention might result in. And that's, that's another kind of utilitarian calculation that is kind of trying to get around the basic Judgment, which is yeah, we want to prefer those who are young and um, not prefer those who are older.
1: Yeah one, sounds- other, one,
2: one last thing about who should do it you mentioned um, just really quick This is a big thing for physicians right now many of the those that I talked to in my work as a medical ethicist um, Are so scared precisely because they were trained to do the opposite of all of this they were trying they right. were trained to See the patient in front of them advocate for the patient in front of them and so they don't want, understandably, to be thinking about these cost-benefit analyses or who could benefit more. And so uh, the New York uh, State um, Protocols uh, for av- Advocating Ventilators, which they put together f- five, five years ago, 2015, says there yeah. should be like, triage officers uh, who do this kind of work so that once a patient does get in front of a attending physician, the patient and the physician know that it, it is going to be a relationship between you and me, not... I'm not going to be thinking in the back of my mind. Well, could somebody else really benefit from this ventilator more than you? Sorry, that was a lot, but I just wanted to finish.
1: No, no, I think that's great, and you know, um, you're you're kind of alluding to those same issues that we talk about when we're talking about euthanasia, physician-assisted suicide. You know, that kind of quality of life question, almost. Um, yes. Yes. Yeah, and that's almost like the spin then that I'm hearing. You're saying that they might be using, like, instead of saying, you know, we're discriminating based on your age alone, we're looking at what years you have ahead of you, or however they phrase it.
2: Yeah, in fact, in secular bioethics, uh, well, at least in very influential sectors and sectors in secular uh, secular bioethics, they use this phrase called quality-adjusted life years. So, should you do any intervention X or Y? Well, you you calculate the not only the life years but the quality-adjusted life years. So, if you may say giving somebody a ventilator will add 10 years to their life. You not only calculate that if you're in this camp, but you say, well, let's adjust them for quality. So is the person going to have a significant disability as a result of um, the intervention or, or already have one? Well, we're going to adjust it by five. So we'll take five years off of it because we've got to adjust them for quality. These are the kind of judgments that are just, as you mentioned, are so horrific when it comes to euthanasia and other end of life care and at the beginning of life too. I mean, we have a portion yeah. done on, the, on these spaces as well. Yep we have a, just glad you guys are getting ahead of this fight in Ohio because it's coming and it's coming on this front in a major way.
1: Yeah. Thanks. I think um, maybe that's a good transition to this next topic too. So um, at Ohio right to life, we are the state affiliate of national right to life committee. Um, and they just this past week or maybe last week actually had sent a letter to the um, civil rights office of, the Health and Human Services um, Department, federally, um, sounding the alarm about the danger of planned discrimination and the need to protect persons with disabilities and the elderly elderly, and you know people with chronic conditions and things like that. So in response, the Office of Civil Rights um, put out a statement, I believe just a couple days ago, and said that our civil rights laws, I'm reading from the letter now, Our civil rights laws protect the equal dignity of every human life from ruthless utilitarianism. Health and Human Services is committed to leaving no one behind during an emergency and helping healthcare providers meet that goal. Persons with disabilities with limited English skills and older persons should not be put at the end of the line for healthcare during emergencies. So, um, you know, we know the president's record on on pro-life issues and he's had some really great people advising him and helping him develop pro-life policies throughout his presidency, which we're grateful for. Um, how much reassurance does it provide hospitals and states with administrations that maybe aren't so pro-life friendly that are gonna be compelled to follow that guidance? Sort of a different angle, looking at it from a civil rights perspective. Yeah, no, I think,
2: well, as you know, I think from from the work you know that I do, I, I really want to try to bridge the gap between maybe social justice-minded people who focus more on civil rights and pro-life people who yeah. focus more on human dignity. I don't think we ought to be making this distinction. And here's another example of why I think we ought not to make this distinction. It's powerful, isn't it, to talk about the dignity of the human person being expressed through um, or being protected by civil rights in this way. I I often talk about the civil rights of, um, of prenatal children. So um,
1: mm-hmm.
2: speaking with people I disagree with on abortion. Yeah. So um, I was actually as luck would have it on a conference call with um, Servino yesterday talking about some of this stuff. And it's just not clear that even with this very good guidance that it's enforceable. Mm-hmm. I'm not a lawyer. Um, uh, but I think he said something about the office of the general counsel being the one to go to, to make sure it's enforced. So if you guys have some pull or some kind of way of um, also, in addition to talking to him to, to contact the general counsel's office and make sure that civil rights are being protected during this pandemic and during this emergency, I think that would be very good. Um, especially again, this is coming to Ohio in a way that it's going to come to New York, at least analogously to the way it's come to New York. So, um, I just, I just mentioned that. Yeah. I would also say, um, now that the guidance has been public, I worry that, uh, the people who are gonna be putting together protocols or want to put together protocols that are at variance with it are going to go underground and, and, and have it on the down low or maybe even not have a formal policy at all but allow uh, medical teams and physicians and individual hospitals to kind of do it on the fly or kind of just figure it out. And that makes it uh, very important, I think, for um, those of us that care about civil rights and human dignity to speak up when we see um, this happening. So if our, it's happening to a family member of ours, if one is a nurse or a physician or a, um, a healthcare provider of some kind on the ground and sees this happening, we got to speak up and say, is it the case that are this the, the civil rights of our patients and the human dignity of our patients are being denied this way so that, um, the office of human rights at HHS can step in and enforce what, um, I hopefully, hopefully we all want to enforce, which is the basic civil rights of all, People, especially, are most vulnerable. So that's a that's a long answer to your question. I I hope that it's enforced, um, uh, but I think we need to be expre- um, especially vigilant uh, to make sure that it's enforced. One last thing about this: the I read a really disturbing article at the um, on the website of the New England Journal of Medicine, which talked about the fact that this kind of rationing um, is more acceptable to the general public if it's done silently. They use the word "silent." If there's one thing bioethicists agree on, and we don't agree on a lot, it's that whatever protocols in these situations are um, are used or approved, it should not be done silently. It should be done transparently. That especially families and patients that are coming into the hospital are aware of. That's why I was on um, Tucker Carlson show recently, and I suggested at the end of the appearance call your local hospitals and ask them like, okay, this is a thing. Like many, many hospitals and states are trying to figure this out. What is your policy about, um, triage? If you ever get in that situation. And if you have a loved one who's, you know, over 60, over 65, or who may have a disability, depending on how they answer or not answer, you may want to avoid that hospital. If you can, you may want to go somewhere else.
1: Yeah. That's really good practical guidance to, um, for our people who are listening to this i think that's a great point so as a um human dignity issue this not not the pandemic but just sort of the situation that we find ourselves in with healthcare currently and just really recognizing these shortages that we have in our system i think we're not used to that as americans we just think you know we've got this amazing healthcare system sure it's expensive sometimes it's not the most accessible but we're not used to being told, no, you can't access this, right? Um, so just as a human dignity issue, this feels like an opportunity to e- educate Americans about the value of life and sort of what a pro-life ethic looks like in this. So just for the average pro-life person, not um, you know the ER doc, not the ICU doc or nurse who's facing this on the front lines every day, um, how do you think our members can best engage in this current crisis, sort of in that messaging respect?
2: So I don't know whether it was the right thing to do or not. I think it's probably the right thing to do, but Catherine Lopez and I, um, she's another uh, very strong pro-life public mm-hmm.
1: figure,
2: um, wrote an op-ed in the New York Daily News praising Governor Cuomo for his pro-life approach to um, people, especially the elderly at the end of life in New York. He's He's been a champion for that. and He invokes his, his mother Matilda for this, I think he called it Matilda's Law or Matilda's Principle or something about how we're not going to abandon our old in New York. Interesting. And um, as you probably know, he's one of the worst of the worst when it comes to abortion. Yeah. But we really he- held our, he even lit up One World Trade Center after they passed the Reproductive Health mm-hmm. Act in New York in a just a gross example of terribleness. But um, But on this issue, he's been so good and um, I think it's good to point that out when our opponents um, are standing up for human dignity and the civil rights of the most vulnerable in ways that are frankly countercultural and he's done that and that's good. And but I think it's and we only hinted at the abortion piece like um, we didn't make it about abortion. And I think that's probably the way to handle this is to say to people who maybe don't share our views, um, wow, it's really good that we're all of us are doing what we can to help. Um, in some ways, what, we, what we're doing is we're putting our own autonomy and freedom and choice aside, uh, right? Um, in, in, in social distancing and isolating. Yeah. Or the most vulnerable. But that—that that is really at odds with our current pro-choice and even pro-abortion mentality, isn't it? Like where autonomy and freedom and choice come before dignity of the human person before, especially the most vulnerable among us. Yeah. But I don't think that's now is the time to really kind of scream and shout that and say, why don't you get right with abortion? You know, I think it's, I think it's better to kind of hold our fire on that and hint at it more than stay it directly. And there will be a time. I mean, books are, we're living through a moment in history. Books will be written about this. Major long form articles be written about this. We'll be talking about this with our, you know, children and grandchildren, hopefully for a very long time. Maybe if we can take the, maybe a medium term view as opposed to a short term view is like, how can we then marshal the kind of energy and decisions that we've made as a culture to put again, put aside our own autonomy and freedom and choice for the benefit of a vulnerable um, population at risk for death. Um, What other ways can we then transition and live out those principles more consistently and um, I think that'll bear more fruit. If we if we send the message that we want to use this crisis for some other agenda, and I support the agenda, um, I think we might undermine ourselves, actually. So that's at least my two cents.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, okay, so I like the idea of just sort of um, kind of focusing on the thing at hand, right? Like having people just talk about the issues at hand and um,
2: respect. we can hint it. at it and say, isn't it interesting that we're putting our our autonomy and freedom and choice aside, you know, for this human life that is often discarded. Um, And maybe even say like, you know, that maybe there'll be times to talk about this down the future about abortion or euthanasia and other issues. But again, I think, I think the last thing we want to do in my opinion is allow our, those who are skeptical of us or even don't know a whole lot about us to say, well, that, that really sounds like they're using this crisis for their own Political agenda or something?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense to me. Okay, um, those are kind of the end of all the questions that I had, but I did want to offer you the opportunity too. I know you um, obviously you teach at Fordham and you write pretty extensively about um, ethics and and bioethic issues in particular. Um, are there any resources out there that you want to suggest that people look at as follow up? Um, maybe things you've written or just you know websites or um groups that you like to follow
2: yeah well i um in part because of uh, the democratic party's apparent refusal to to acknowledge that 25 percent or even 33 percent, depending what poll you look at or how you interpret the poll are pro-life i recently stepped down from the board of democrats for life and joined uh, something called the american solidarity party so if any anyone watching this is frustrated with um our current politics, and that would be me. (laughs) Um, uh, I encourage them to try alternatives. We don't have to play in this sandbox with only these two people. Um, There are are alternatives and faithful pro-life alternatives, in my opinion, and the American Solidarity Party is the best of those. Not perfect, but the best of those. I might also suggest, if I can, (laughs) that folks take a look at my book, uh, Resisting Throwaway Culture, which tries to articulate a pro-life ethic (laughs) across the board with with regard to um, abortion, euthanasia, and how we treat the elderly, and also, um, you know, like our sexual culture and a, and a hookup culture that throws people away and puts them at risk for violence. And also uh, the migrant who is discarded and sent back to um, war-torn areas where they are marked for death. And yeah, um, and maybe this would be a good point for, for me to end on. I, I, in the book, I argue that, um, a culture of encounter that Pope Francis talks about all the time is like our antidote to antidote to the throwaway culture. And um one of the things that was countercultural about his saying that in my book was that we were already moving away from a culture of encounter toward a culture of isolation. Um social media ironically has made us less connected to each other. Yes.
1: Um
2: uh, people are desperately lonely, were desperately lonely and already disconnected from each other, dying of suicide and other kinds of deaths of despair. Um, I grew up in the Midwest, so I know and how it's different <laughs> there than, than here in the East Coast. Um, uh, so things were already bad before this and now with, I don't know, two months, three months of is- isolation from each other, what is that going to do to Our humanity to our relationships to our culture which is already moving away at this so I really think the culture of encounter is so important and um, when this is done I really hope especially pro-lifers and people of faith can can resist what I think is going to be a very serious trend even after this is done to not shake hands not give hugs not be in the presence of people have more ironically zoom meetings rather than face-to-face meetings Um, Uh, if I can just speak as a Christian uh, now and as a theologian now, Christ came to us as a person, not um, as a document or as a book or as an idea. And we encounter Christ as a person in the scriptures, but also in the Eucharist. And I think Christians who believe that need to live that out, um, that our own um, encounters with each other also need to be embodied encounters that the encounters with Christ as an embodied encounter changed people. And I don't think we're going to be able to change people. Um, and importantly, as I write in the book, have ourselves changed by those encounters as well, unless we're committed to being in the presence of people through a culture of genuine encounter. But I, that's, I guess that's a long way of saying, I'm worried about what, what kind of culture we will have um, after this is all over as hopefully it will be. Um, when it comes to genuine encounters, so maybe that's one thing we we can we can try to focus on after we're done is really meet other people, um, make a make an explicit attempt to be counterculturally meeting people in their spaces in a genuine encounter.
1: Yeah, I love that. It's a really great point. Um, say the name of your most recent book again. Resilience. <laughs> sorry, it froze. Can you say it one more oh, time?
2: Sorry. Resisting throwaway culture.
1: There it is. Okay, great. So feel free to um, search out a copy of that. Again, Professor Komosi's written pretty extensively on a lot of pro-life um, ethic and moral and theological issues in a really interesting and engaging way. So certainly um, feel free to check those things out. So thank you so much for being here today, Professor. I really appreciate your time.
2: This has been oh, a great thanks, thanks for all your work um, at Ohio Rights Life. I'll continue to follow it on Twitter.
1: Thank you. Yeah. And um, that's a great way to end this too. So this interview is going to be posted on our YouTube channel. Um, We'll also run it on our podcast and for all things news and pro-life Ohio happenings, be sure to visit our website, ohiolife.org. Sign up for our emails, give us a follow on Twitter. Um, Certainly these days while we're all kind of stuck indoors, we are much more active on social media. So we'll be there too. You can find us and, and engage with us there. So thank you again so much. And um, hopefully we'll talk again sometime soon.
2: Thanks, Stephanie.
0: You're listening to the Pro-Life Ohio podcast presented by Ohio Right to Life. Founded in 1967, Ohio Right to Life, with more than 45 chapters and local affiliates, is Ohio's oldest and largest grassroots pro-life organization. Recognized as the flagship of the pro-life movement in Ohio, Ohio Right to Life works through legislation and education to promote and defend innocent human life from conception to natural death. We are Pro-Life Ohio, and we will end abortion.